Hello again and welcome back. In, in our course here in food toxicology, we've tried to survey some of the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls involved in toxicology and specifically those related to food toxicology. In the past two lectures, what we tried to do is start working out of uh, toxicology and some of the processes of toxicology and look at all of those food-related uh, chemicals uh, and processes that might have a toxicological impact. You recall from the last two lectures, we actually dealt with food allergens. The first time we've kind of crossed over the threshold into a different sort of toxicological endpoint. And last time we talked about some specific food chemicals that cause an allergic response of some kind. Previously in the semester, what we've done is actually reviewed the concept of pesticide residues in food, okay? And I define pesticide residues as economic poisons that are out there for all sorts of uh, public health and pest problems associated with agriculture. Now today, in the next two lectures, what we're gonna try to start is a series on food additives. And today we're gonna talk about food additive safety assessment. Our learning objectives here today what we're gonna do is try to understand some of the background. We're gonna review a little bit and also the principles of safety assessment associated with food additives. We'll try to review some of the quantitative assessment of dietary exposure to various food additives and these for the uh, development of uh, concern levels. We'll try as well to explore some of the basics of how these uh, ingredients are tested related to food additives. We'll try to explore some of the relationship between food type and food packaging and the potential for uh, food package chemicals, uh, the polymers, for example, in plastics that might leach into the food material, how we do a safety assessment for these indirect food additives. We'll try as well to understand the interaction of the Delaney Clause. The Delaney Clause we introduced in the pesticides in foods uh, lecture, we'll try to do some more uh, and how the Delaney Clause in terms of uh, contaminants in food and how food additive regulation interacts with that particular aspect of federal regulation. But first, it's a good idea to start with a definition of what a food additive is. And we'll use the working definition that it's a substance which may, by its intended use, become a component of food, and that can be either directly or indirectly, and we'll talk about how we differentiate those and those that might affect somehow the characteristics of food. Now we can think of all sorts of ways we can add chemicals or add substances to food to improve, if for instance it's uh, uh, preservation abilities, it's uh, flavor, it's color. All of those uh, are aspects of food development. So we can be uh, adding food substances in the production, manufacturing, preparation, cooking, uh, even the packaging or handling of food, and we'll look at how we monitor food additives and how we list them and how we regulate them. Now, in terms of the scope of food additives, there's over 3,000 uh, food additives uh, that we uh, have in use. Uh, some of these are uncommon. Some of them are more common than others. About 1,800 of these are flavoring agents. Uh, there's various texturizing agents that are used and these materials are used in the highest quantity. Soft drinks are the biggest market, so if you have a concern about food additives, avoiding soft drinks will probably decrease your load significantly. The four most direct food additives in terms of uh, the total, that's 93% of the total, are sucrose, uh, sugar, salt, 
corn syrup, and dextrose. Okay? So that is the majority component of food additives in the U.S. diet. Now, in terms of the categories of food additive, we have six categories, preservatives, nutritional, flavor, color, uh, texture, and miscellaneous. And each one of these helps uh, the food product itself be what it needs to be in terms of, for instance, emulsifying certain chemicals, keeping them from separating in storage, uh, various uh, enzymes, various uh, color materials, additional uh, nutrients in terms of vitamins and minerals that might be added in a supplemented food product, uh, flavor enhancers. All of these are in the categories of food additives. Now, in terms of our consumption of food additives, it works out to about 139 pounds per year per person. It seems like a lot, uh, but if we remove the common ones, including spices, sugar, salt, honey, pepper, mustard, dextrose, and all of those, it works down to only about five pounds per year if we remove those. Now, when we survey consumers about food additives, there is some general concern. and has a lot to do with perhaps the media representation of some of uh, the food additives that have been removed from the marketplace, uh, categorizing all food additives as potentially problematic, even though many of these are very, very common household uh, food product materials. 75% of the people uh, surveyed uh, suggest that they are somewhat concerned about food additives. 60% try to avoid them. Um, however, only about 6% could name one. And so uh, there's uh, plenty of room in terms of public education of what food additives are and perhaps what they also are not. Now, in terms of consumption of color additives, uh, we find that uh, the maximum amount is about 53 milligrams per day. Um, and that works out to, uh, in terms of actual consumption, about 15 milligrams per day. Uh, about 10% of the foods that we eat contain some sort of food coloring. And again, this adds to the whole sensory perception of food. Uh, it enhances our enjoyment of food when we see uh, a, uh, a food product that has uh, an appropriate color and not a discoloration. Uh, it's, it's, again, one of the sensory properties of food. Now, the way we actually classify and categorize food additives, we keep track of them uh, with various numbering systems. Uh, the first among these is the E system. This applies uh, by the uh, European Economic Community, the EEC. Uh, this uh, numbering system uses a, an E in front of a number. Uh, for example, E123 is amaranth, and that's a color of red in terms of food color. Uh, these additives are considered safe and allowed between countries in the European economic community. Uh, nutrient additives are not included in this particular list. There are other lists, uh, including the international numbering system, and this was developed by the Codex Alimentarius, and this is by the Commission on Food Additives and Contaminants, and this is WHO-FAO in terms of international food additives. And this has a lot to do with the fact that many food products are in global trade that cross borders readily. And so this is a way for uh, uh, various countries to adopt a uniform system of numbering so we know what's in there, what's allowed at what particular level. This is far broader than the E-system of the EEC. Uh, for example, uh, number 491 is uh, sorbitan monostyrate. It's in the category of emulsifiers and stabilizers, salts of esters of fatty acids. 
Uh, a listing, just because it's listed in the food additive numbering system, uh, does not necessarily imply toxicology improval. Um, and you'll find that exactly there is a transferability between the numbers in the international numbering system and the EE system, and it has a lot to do with whether or not there's an E in front of it. There are 23 functional classes of food additives in this particular list. Now, in terms of our exploration of food additives, we can categorize them as direct food additives. These are added for uh, the gain of a specific functional property uh, in food, for instance, emulsification. There are also certified color additives. There are exempt color additives. Um, for example, uh, natural products, uh, when we buy uh, pink lemonade being actually colored by grape juice. And then we have a category of unintentional additives, and sometimes uh, these will have uh, an action base or a tolerance level associated uh, with these. And this might be uh, associated with uh, a pure food uh, being uncontaminated by, for instance, lead or arsenic or mercury. Now, exempt chemicals are a large list. When we introduced um, the Delaney Clause and uh, did a, a survey of the regulatory history uh, of uh, food regulation in the United States, we talked a little about, about the FFDCA and the concept of grass are generally recognized as safe. Uh, many chemicals that have uh, been classified as food additives are also classified as grass. And this comes to us from various uh, scientific studies or wide usage, uh, for example, salt, vitamins, uh, many categories of chemicals that have been used in food preparation uh, for, in some cases, centuries. Uh, Typically, in terms of the determination or review of grass status uh, or a grass application, that's done by qualified experts, experts that determine from existing knowledge that it is uh, primarily considered to be safe. This uh, may or may not be an FDA decision. Sometimes so the company can say, you know, this is very reasonable. We're adding uh, a particular product that has been used uh, and perhaps a natural product uh, that has been used for decades and it therefore is safe. Um, there can be a classification, if you recall, prior to um, some of the uh, Delaney Clause aspects uh, forward in the amendments of 1958 of the FFDCA. Um, there were prior sanctioned uh, chemicals or food additives, and they're approved uh, uh, prior to the amendments, and it was written into regulation at that point in time. Some of these compounds include, for instance, uh, sodium nitrite for meat preservation. Now, in terms of grass ingredients, these are not food additives. Um, they're exempt from uh, pre-market uh, clearance but must be supported for, for non-food additives. They're exempt from pre-market clearance but must be supported uh, by safety data. Uh, they are exempt from the Delaney Clause. What you'll notice is they uh, generally recognize a safe list uh, that's in the Code of Federal Regulations is not inclusive, so it's not a... Uh, it has to be on this list to be grass. Uh, um, there is an opening in terms of the code uh, that allows for other uh, uh, chemicals to be considered to be grass. This, for example, uh, in, in regulatory science, uh, quite often we find a specific regulatory lists of chemicals or uh, specific processes. In terms of FFDCA, um, there are broad categories, there are specific lists, uh, but there's also the inclusion of other things that can be considered or recognized as safe. 
1997, there was a review in terms of the FDA uh, regulations uh, in terms of how grass petitions happen. happen. Um, essentially, th the idea is that FDA didn't have to uh, review every grass uh, petition uh, if it was fell into the regime of uh, common sense or common uh, materials, if, 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 uh, if not. Uh, the companies uh, proposing a grass status for an ingredient would uh, submit an intention to list that uh, FDA or may or may not review, and there is a, uh, a way that uh, at least the bureaucracy uh, is sped up to allow for grass materials to be used in food production via this uh, efficiency change. Now we do have a classification of regulated food additives, and these are food additives that are not color, they're not grass, or they are not prior sanctioned in terms of the 1958 uh, amendments. These regulated food additives do require FDA approval. There needs to be some scientific data that no harm will occur. That scientific data is actually produced uh, via uh, a, a recipe book, if you will, a, a protocol to be followed, referred to as the FDA Red Book. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, later in this lecture. Uh, the Red Book guidelines give the specific categories of tests that need to be uh, done for particular types and particular uh, safety uh, concerns uh, for food additives. Uh, in terms of the application, you have to justify the function. Uh, why are you adding this chemical? What is it doing in terms of the food uh, material, enhancing food quality, for example, or preservation? There are 32 uh, categories of these regulated food additives. There uh, are not many food additives in terms of ones that actually go into uh, the human food chain uh, through this process. Since 1970, there have only been uh, eight of them. They're here on this list. They go from sucralose, uh, olestra, silan gum, to uh, acesulfame, uh, polydextrose, aspartame, that you probably have heard of, and TBHQ. And so not many of these uh, actually go through all of the studies required as a food additive. In terms of color, color additives, these materials, these chemicals, require uh, the same testing as food additives. Color additives are not eligible as grass status, uh, generally recognized as safe. Um, they are tested at all the FDA concern levels, and we'll define concern levels here in a moment. There are two types of color additives uh, classified as certified, and these are certified by FDA chemists for purity, and then another category called exempt, and these are typically natural products such as caramel coloring. Now, certified color additives, uh, this has the prefix of F, D, and C, so if you see F, D, and C, red number 10, you know what that means. There are two exceptions to this rule. Uh, orange C and citrus red 2 don't carry that designation. That's a little bit just historical. Uh, every batch of these chemicals, as they are, are manufactured, uh, must be FDA certified, primarily for purity and absence of contamination. Many of the color additives that we actually use in food uh, include aromatic amines and aromatic uh, azo compounds. Uh, these compounds, uh, as a class, have been known for their toxicity. Uh, the ones that are actually approved for food use are somewhat uh, unusually non-toxic uh, in terms of uh, 
um, these classes of compounds. And so these do go through toxicity trials and testing. Uh, again, from a category point of view, these ones are a little bit unusual. In terms of exempt color additives, these are usually naturally occurring. There's about 25 of them, things like dried algae, beet powder, uh, grape skin extract, fruit juice, caramel coloring. Uh, these are commonly used. They do uh, lack precise chemical identity, and so uh, when you use a grape extract, there are several chemical, naturally occurring chemical compounds that make up that grape coloring, that intense uh, color. Uh, it's hard to kind of manage them in terms of uh, uh, purity or analysis. Uh, typically, um, it's followed through by uh, manufacturing process control to keep a color of a particular food product uh, uniform on a batch-to-batch -batch basis. Natural products uh, do fade readily. They lack intensity and uniformity, and so uh, in terms of process control are a little bit more problematic, although they do carry the all-natural uh, label in terms of uh, food marketing. Um, some higher levels of these compounds are required because of the lower intensity of color. Uh, they um, are used less than uh, synthetic uh, food colors uh, on the whole, with the exception perhaps of uh, caramel coloring. We also have the concept of contaminant tolerances, and this has a lot to do with uh, products uh, that get uh, contaminated just via normal and natural processes and cycling of contaminants uh, in the environment. Um, not many of you have uh, perhaps known this, but normal background soil, for instance, contains lead. Uh, therefore, uh, plants that are grown in normal background soils can same, will contain some trace amounts of lead. Uh, fish products contain some trace amounts of mercury from the biogeochemical cycling of mercury in the environment. And so these are unavoidable contaminants, but there are tolerances that are established to make sure that the food products do not present uh, uh, a risk uh, to, to the consuming public. Um, so we do have an acceptable level, um, and we have uh, some routine monitoring processes such that foods cannot exceed those levels. Uh, we have enforceable levels for various uh, compounds of concern, things like med lead and mercury, uh, PCBs, some nitrosochemicals are in that category of enforceable limits or enforceable tolerances. Now we also have contaminant uh, action levels. These are uh, informal tolerances. These are concern levels. Uh, they're not legally enforceable. Uh, they do allow some flexibility between foods, for example, uh, aflatoxin residues will be observed in many uh, grains in trace amounts. Uh, how much that particular grain or food product gets used in the human diet will allow some flexibility in terms of what might present a real risk to consumers. Uh, it is going to be based then on estimated exposures. There are also the concept of unintentional food additives, and this is, as I introduced, uh, for example, uh, packaging chemicals uh, that might be uh, used in, in materials, things like uh, cereal boxes that have BHA and BHT in the packaging to prevent oxidation. It's not in the food product, but in the packaging. Uh, there's obviously many uh, uh, polymers in plastic, uh, and now with the advent of uh, boiling packs and microwave-ready foods, uh, there's some concerns, obviously, about polymers or plasticizers migrating from the packing materials into the food product, and there are mechanisms to test all of these. 
uh, processing chemicals in terms of things like polyaromatic hydrocarbon levels from cooking, uh, solvents that might be used in extractions, for instance, uh, decaffeinated coffee. As well, there might be some unintentional food additives associated with uh, environmental exposure, and these can be either natural chemicals, as I've said, lead in soil, or anthropogenic chemicals uh, that uh, might, be, uh, might exist uh, out in nature uh, due to uh, our release of those chemicals. For instance, uh, PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls. Uh, they do include things like lead and mercury, pesticides, and fumigants. Now, in terms of how we go about uh, testing uh, food additives uh, to allow them in the human food chain, uh, in food products and processing, there is a, a guidance that the Food and Drug Administration has in a book uh, referred to as Red Book. Its formal name is the Toxicological Principles for the Safety Assessment of Direct Food Additives and Color Additives Used in Food. Uh, I've given a link on this slide, it's clickable, um, or you can just uh, do a search engine and find uh, the FDA Red Book if you want to read through the range of tests that are required for food additives. Uh, primarily, the point of all of the tests in here is to determine what the safe uh, dose is, the acceptable daily intake of these food additives. It's good to know the definitions of some of these uh, uh, various things like acceptable daily intake and reference dose. Uh, these terms are somewhat used interchangeably. ADI is a little bit older term. Reference dose is uh, perhaps a bit younger. They uh, are very similar. Uh, reference dose is an estimate, and this usually has an uncertainty level, and this is of the daily oral exposure uh, to, uh, that, uh, to uh, the human population that is likely without appreciable risk. So when you exceed a reference dose, it transfers into an unacceptable risk category. We derived these. We, we did a little bit of analysis of this when we looked at reference dose development for pesticides in the human food chain and when we did our uh, dose response curves. And you remember that we had no observed adverse effect levels and lowest observed adverse effect levels. These dose indicators, actual data from toxicology trials with the safety factors, appropriate uh, uncertainty factors applied to them, can be used to establish these reference doses in terms of what may be acceptable, especially for subpopulations or particularly sensitive populations. And when we start talking about things uh, that might uh, cause, for instance, uh, neurotoxicity or uh, developmental effects, there's additional safety factors associated with those. Now, in terms of the protocols in the Red Book, uh, there are a number of safety uh, protocols, uh, test protocols that are used. Uh, some of these include the acute short-term LD50 from a dose-response curve a uh, subchronic maximum tolerated dose, and again, these are rodent studies, typically they, the way they start out. Uh, chronic dose effects uh, with Mills, the ADI, and the reference dose being developed from that data. Uh, tests for carcinogenicity and mutagenicity, developmental toxicity, immunotox, neurotox, and various metabolic and analytical work to define the primary metabolic pathway to define uh, formal methods of analysis that FDA scientists and other scientists can use in regulatory monitoring of these chemicals, not only in the food product, but in tissues and in processed elements of the original food product.
Now, one of the purposes of uh, the FDA Red Book is to come up with an ADI, and to do that, we need to estimate exposures. We estimate exposures by establishing an estimated daily intake, an EDI, and we do this for direct food and color additives, and also for indirect food additives. Now, the sum of the EDIs is uh, available. Um, that is available from all sources cannot exceed the reference dose of the ADI. Now, you remember back when we talked about pesticides uh, in the human food chain, we had the exact same concept that this uh, reference dose was a risk cup. And when that cup was full from whatever source, and that can be aggregate exposure, not only from the human food chain, but also in the case of pesticides, for instance, contaminated drinking water. And so once you exceed that, that's an unallowable risk, okay? And so typically what's going to happen in those sorts of cases is if the risk is unacceptable, there'll be a back off in terms of acceptable uses of that particular chemical. Now in terms of the classification of direct food additives, we come up with an estimated daily intake or an EDI as the amount of food consumed daily times the concentration of the additive in the food. And so that's a fairly straightforward formula to take. Uh, we'll have to develop, obviously, some concentration data, and that's typically done at the manufacturer level, and then also intake in terms of what, a what a, the human diet is uh, in the United States. What are these dietary profiles? And so these have to be the sum of all sources of additives in food and non-food uses, and each will develop a unique number in terms of these uh, estimations. Now, the way we estimate uh, consumption is we'll take uh, an analysis of the level of food additives in particular food categories, uh, for instance, beverages. We'll look at daily intake of each food category containing the additives. We'll look at the distribution of intakes in various population groups. What we learn, for instance, in pesticide residues in food is that the diets of infants and children are significantly different than the diets of adults. And so if we're going to develop children as a risk model, for instance, baby foods or various processed foods used uh, for uh, young children, uh, this is a different mode of exposure, for instance, than an adult. We'll also take into account if there might be some exposure from non-food sources, for example, a drinking water system in a particular urban area might be contaminated with uh, nitrates or nitrites in addition to the nitrates and nitrites that might be used in meat processing. A picture here of Takaru Kobayashi. Uh, I thought I'd put this on here in terms of special subpopulations. This individual uh, recently won the hot dog eating contest, 54 hot dogs, uh, I'm sure the risk assessment of food additives doesn't exactly cover individuals with those sorts of uh, dietary extremes. In terms of determining uh, the concentration uh, in food of direct additives, these are determined uh, by the manufacturer in terms of achieving the end product, uh, be it, for instance, uh, a particular desirable uh, food sensory or food quality uh, uh, in, in a particular product. Um, they will assume the highest uh, level um, allowable. They'll assume the processor uses uh, a process called uh, CGMP, or Current Good Manufacturing Practices, uh, and that they do not abuse the levels. CGMP is a rigorous uh, uh, process uh, 
of documenting uh, and traceability of uh, information, for instance, chemicals, um, that allows for a reconstruction of what exactly uh, was put in a particular food product, CGMP. Now, in determining uh, some of the estimated dose, we have to take a look at food categories. <clears throat> there are 43 food categories. I've listed a few on the next couple slides, give you an idea of what the Code of Federal Regulations actually lists. Uh, baking goods and baking mixes, uh, subsections of ready-to-eat and ready-to-cook products, beverages, alcoholic beer wines, examples, beverages, non-alcoholics, things like spiced teas and soft drinks, breakfast cereals, ready-to-eat and instant. And these categories uh, total uh, 43, and I've given this Code of Federal Regulations citation here, so you can kind of review this uh, if you would like. Now, in terms of food consumption surveys, uh, we have several ways to assess uh, 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 potential for exposure of food additives. Some of these include the National Food Consumption Survey, and this was done in 1987-1988 by USDA. Various continuing survey of food in, uh, intakes by individuals, uh, USA, and that's 1985-91. to there's also uh, various um, National Academy of Sciences, National Research Council studies, estimates of daily intake, and the FDA total diet study in 1987. Uh, again, the idea is to look not only at broad uh, cross-sections, but also specific groups, uh, ethnic groups, racial groups, uh, geographical groups that might have a disproportionate exposure to one of these particular food groups. There are some problems with these survey techniques. Uh, they are only three to 14 day snapshots. Uh, I, I know I tend to eat uh, seasonal foods uh, quite a bit more um, in terms of my own diet. Uh, there's a lack of detail in terms of age, ethnic group, food groups uh, that might be required for really estimating uh, some of the risk. And some of the food groups are actually outdated. They haven't kept up with uh, the newest, latest uh, food technology developments, perhaps even snack foods and some consumer foods. Uh, the lists are not particularly user-friendly. How to classify a particular food, uh, there's not a lot of guidance uh, in terms of what is the best category for a food group. Now, in terms of establishing an EDI, uh, one of the things that we want to do is assign a concern level associated uh, with these uh, EDIs. Next few slides will go through the process of how that is done according to Red Book standards. Now, these food safety concern levels, or CLs, we have three levels, uh, one, two, and three, and these are based on uh, what are referred to as quantitative structure activity relationships to known toxic chemicals. The concept there is that we have a molecular form, and the idea is that certain types of functional groups, certain molecular sizes and conformations will have similar sorts of activity in terms of, for instance, receptor interaction, damage to cell membranes, uh, and the like. There's actually uh, some software out there that allows for QSAR, or quantitative structure activity relationships, so that you can compare sets of chemicals to uh, each other. Uh, it's based on uh, structural functional groups, I said, and we can categorize those uh, in terms of its uh, risk in terms of category A, B, and C. Uh, these uh, uh, concern levels are based uh, uh, in, in large part on exposure level. It's going to de derive 
most of its uh, concern from the level of exposure. In terms of the toxicity categories A, B, and C, we have category A, which is a low toxic potential, category B, an intermediate or unknown toxicity, and then category C for the highest degree of toxic concern. In terms of putting that all into a matrix to develop uh, these uh, concern levels uh, from various exposure levels, uh, in this matrix, uh, across the top, we have the three levels of toxicity, again, C being the highest toxicity, and these are the exposure numbers in terms of the milligrams per kilogram in a food product. Uh, what you can see is, for instance, you'll get a concern level of one from a very low level of a highly toxic compound relatively to a, relative to a non-toxic compound. This, these numbers uh, give you an idea of uh, the concentrations, and again, this level, for example, in terms of uh, is, is uh, uh, 0.05 milligrams per kilogram, or 50 parts uh, per billion in food, okay? So low-level concentration in terms of a food additive. So in terms of summarizing uh, food additives, uh, what we're going to try to do um, when we're in analyzing this in terms of risk assessment, uh, safety assessment of food additives, we're going to do an EDI, an estimated uh, daily intake. We're going to try to determine the toxicity rating, and this is going to be from scientific studies and quantitative structure activity relationships. We're then going to use those numbers to assign a uh, concern level, um, with number three being the highest concern, and therefore uh, demanding more testing. There is a protocol for each level of concern. You'll see that on the next slide. Um, the exposure is, carries a significant amount of weight in terms of assigning these uh, concern levels. Uh, these determine the toxicity tests that are required. The range of toxicity tests required for each level, for uh, concern level one, we need a short-term repeated dose study, and these again are rodent studies, uh, not less than 28 days. There'll be a short-term carcinogen test, and they'll look for genetic toxicity and mutagenicity by the Ames test assay that we reviewed. In category two, there is a requirement for a subchronic uh, rodent assay, 90 days, two species, typically mice and rats. Uh, there might be, there is also a request for a multi-generation, two-generation reproduction study with a teratology phase looking for um, uh, teratogenesis and also the short-term carcinogenesis study. When we get to the highest concern level, uh, there is also coupled with that uh, the highest level of required testing and therefore expense. Uh, these tests are typically extraordinarily expensive to drive a new food additive through this is uh, perhaps uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, worth of studies. Uh, Concern level three will require carcinogen studies in rats and mice, chronic feeding study for a year, uh, perhaps uh, in uh, combination with the carcinogen study. There'll be a chronic study uh, in non-rodent species uh, for one year, a multi-generation, two-generation reproduction with teratology, and then also a short-term carcinogen study. So to summarize all of these, I've built in a matrix here for you. Um, give you an idea that across these different concern levels, one, two, and three, 
These are all the toxicity tests in this column. You can see that if you do get a food additive or a proposed food additive that's in concern level three, it's going to require a tremendous amount of studies and therefore a potentially large expense. If this is an important food additive, for instance, a sugar replacement uh, in terms of the potential marketplace for this, uh, the uh, market valuation of, of a new food additive might be worth the investment of all of the toxicity tests associated with that. Now let's explore the category of indirect food additives. And as you recall, these are not added directly to the food. Uh, these are typically materials that enter through migration from packaging uh, materials, uh, some holding containers, or perhaps processing surfaces during uh, food processing. Uh, the major categories are things like cans and cardboard, plastics and glass uh, materials. The estimates of indirect additive migration come to us through a series of extraction methods that were developed to simulate uh, all of the different food types uh, that uh, uh, might occur. And so we have uh, aqueous acidic foods. So we'll use an extraction solution that is 8% ethanol. Uh, if it's an alcoholic food, like a beer or a wine beverage, that might be 50% uh, ethanol solution for extraction. Fatty foods will use corn oils or synthetic triglycerides. And what we do is we expose the solvent to the packaging in order to extract uh, the chemicals, for example, the polymers or the plasticizers in the packaging um, to allow for uh, follow-up analysis and quantitative uh, uh, analysis of what might be in that. What we do in terms of the extraction is run this at temperatures that are appropriate to the type of food uh, and the processing associated with that type of food. For instance, there's various food processing retort, uh, retorted foods. Uh, these might be packaged uh, hot in containers. Uh, there'll be 212, 250, 275 degrees uh, for two hours and then held um, 238 hours for at uh, 120 degrees. And what we're trying to do is simulate but do an excess amount of uh, uh, perhaps extraction, get a worst case scenario of what might be loading into the food product uh, associated with transfer of these uh, indirect additives. For refrigerated foods, we'll do the same thing, but we'll hold them at 70 degrees, uh, essentially approaching room temperature, a little high room temperature there um, to, to look at uh, what might happen to refrigerated food that has been left um, out on the shelf. For frozen foods, uh, they'll do the same uh, room temperature, uh, but they'll hold it out there for uh, 120 hours in terms of completing the extraction. Now the exposure estimates for indirect food additives is very similar. Um, how much of it is in the food, and we convert that to exposure uh, in terms of uh, using a um, consumption factor, uh, CF, or a food type distribution factor. In the next few slides, what we'll do is show you the calculations of how we go through the matrix of all the different uh, types of food products in the different types of food packaging to come up with these exposure estimates. Now, in terms of uh, the two uh, most important variables, the consumption factor is the amount of the U.S. diet that comes into contact with all of these different kinds of packaging materials. So paper, metal polymers, or some of those uh, uh, packaging material types. 
will cross-matrix that with a food type, an FT, and this is the fraction of the food types that each packaging material is used for. And so if we go through all those food types, we can develop a, uh, a matrix of these different materials. Now, in terms of the consumption factors, if we break those down in the U.S. food system, we come up with a number of 8% uh, for glass, uh, for instance, uncoated metal, 3%. Uh, polymers up at 41%, polymer-coated paper at uh, 21%. And these are from various surveys of what's actually out in the food system. In terms of food type distribution factors, these FTs, we estimate the fraction of the food type for each of the different types of packaging that is used. And then we do this for each type of packaging category. When we do this, we come up with a matrix that looks like these numbers in terms of the percentage. For instance, the first column uh, for aqueous uh, uh, products in glass, about 8%. If we go down to the opposite end in terms of polymer for fat-based materials, uh, we find about 34% of fat-based food products uh, are in some sort of polymer packaging. So this gives us an idea of coming up with these different factors to do the estimated uh, exposure levels for all of these different types of indirect food additives. If we do that, what we do is uh, just run it through fairly simple uh, uh, mathematic, uh, uh, mathematical analysis of the estimated dietary um, levels. If we look at the CFs or the consumption factor, and we uh, multiply that by the food type distribution factor. For example, in this, it's aqueous acidic uh, parts per million. In the extraction solution, in this case, it's 8% ethanol, uh, plus the other sorts of uh, materials associated with uh, uh, different types of uh, food types. Uh, and we do this run through this uh, estimated daily uh, exposure. Uh, we come up with a milligrams per person per day, uh, assuming that the average person will be eating three kilograms uh, in terms of daily food consumption. So what we have is that we have the sum of these, uh, uh, each individual component uh, uh, coming up with uh, an EDI, uh, when we do these, uh, these uh, exposure doses, those cannot uh, exceed the uh, acceptable daily intake. And so again, it's kind of a risk cup. Here's your risk cup on this side. This is the exposure level. Uh, the analysis there in terms of these indirect additives gives us the ability to do a safety assessment associated with some of these food additives. Now, in terms of the toxicity testing of these indirect food additives, if there's negligible uh, migration, uh, and this is less than uh, 50 parts per billion, 50 uh, micrograms uh, per kilogram, and an EDI of 0.15 milligrams per person per day, uh, then acute toxicity studies are only required. If we have uh, migration uh, exceeding that, it might require subchronic studies, uh, perhaps in two species. If we've got a large amount of migration greater than one part per million, one milligram per kilogram, uh, it will require chronic studies in two species, uh, carcinogenicity studies, repro studies, and teratogenesis studies. 
Now, in terms of the uh, threshold of regulation, there was new legislation in 1997. Uh, concentrations below that 50 uh, part per billion, 50 part per trillion, and not carcinogenic uh, are uh, exempt from full-blown pre-market evaluation and FDA petition review. There's an assumption at these trace levels there is uh, negligible risk. In terms of the further effects of the FDA Modernization Act of 1997, uh, it allowed that indirect food additives can be marketed for 120 days after, after notifying uh, FDA that this uh, new process is being used. There is a burden of objection on FDA, so it transfers the responsibility to FDA to review and comment and perhaps act on whether or not there is a risk associated with this new process, this new package, and the associated transfer of these indirect uh, food toxicants. Uh, it does put the emphasis in terms of marketplace dynamics of FDA being responsive uh, to some of the developments in the food industry. In terms of dietary supplements, this is a whole another category uh, when we start talking about uh, uh, potential additives or exposure uh, to toxic compounds. Um, recall from some of our comments previously is that these dietary supplements are not regarded as food. Um, they're not regarded as additives or drugs, and so they have a lesser standard of safety. Uh, word to the wise, when you buy these particular dietary supplements, although they may be harmless, on the other side of the coin, there may be sensitive populations, uh, there may be uh, uh, lack of standardization, lack of quality control in terms of what you get exposed to. And we've tried to survey a couple of case studies in terms of reviewing mortality and morbidity of some uh, individuals that were exposed uh, to materials. Uh, labeled as dietary supplements, uh, yet uh, proved to be quite hazardous to their individual health. Um, in terms of uh, additives, there is demonstrated safety. Uh, it's interesting to me, uh, involved in toxicology, that there is great concern uh, to something labeled a food additive, which has a rigorous and demonstrated level of safety associated with it whereas something that is labeled as a dietary supplement uh, is maybe generally regarded uh, by uh, people uh, who consider food additives uh, uh, perhaps uh, hazardous or uh, a uh, adulteration of a food product. Uh, they may um, willingly uh, take dietary supplements even though the, the potential control and the potential exposure to hazardous substances may be significantly greater. Uh, one of the things that you probably know from reading media accounts is that there are uh, uh, FDA does not allow uh, health claims associated with dietary supplements. Uh, so uh, if there is a health claim and there are some dietary supplements associated uh, with uh, improvements in health, if there is scientific data to back that claim, uh, it is allowed. And so there is a review that FDA has typically following a complaint on perhaps a marketplace dynamics of competitors about uh, health claims associated with uh, dietary uh, supplements. Uh, some dietary supplements, uh, if they did have a health claim, they might be considered a drug and then would require a different safety testing. 
Now, there is a great uh, interaction between uh, the Delaney Clause and food additives, uh, as we introduced in several lectures so far in food toxicology. Recall that the Delaney Clause prohibits uh, FDA approval of regulated food additives shown to cause cancer by appropriate tests. This is a zero tolerance, zero risk standard. Uh, a very absolute piece of law. Now we did say that the Laney Clause in terms of its application to pesticides in the, in the human food chain uh, was changed in 1996 due to the Food Quality Protection Act. Uh, this has not uh, been changed in terms of its approach to monitoring and regulating food additives in the human food chain. The appropriate tests used uh, to look at carcinogenesis are animal tests in terms of relating to Delaney. Delaney Clause does apply to regulated food additives, coloring additives, and drugs uh, used in the, uh, and sometimes these are animal drugs in the human food chain. It does not apply to unavoidable contaminants, uh, grass substances, the prior 1958 uh, sanctioned uh, ingredients, or non-functional trace contaminants non-functional trace contaminants being uh, essentially contaminants of a food additive. If you look at a bulk chemical that is used as a food, as a food additive, that chemical in terms of its industrial production uh, may have uh, one-tenth of one percent uh, contamination by manufacturing byproducts. Uh, these are not regulated in terms of managed uh, through the Delaney Clause. These uh, non-functional carcinogenic components, even though uh, they're, uh, they may appear in these food additives, they're in uh, very, very low trace amounts. There is a policy associated uh, with that in terms of uh, FDA's approach to managing these. And again, Delaney is not invoked. Uh, the health effects are typically, in terms of dose response, uh, negligible. These are examined by a probabilistic risk assessment model. Uh, we haven't talked much about probabilistic risk assessment in this course. I'll refer to it several times. Uh, if we do risk assessment uh, uh, but under uh, stochastic or probabilistic uh, approaches, instead of taking uh, a, a discrete number in terms of a calculation, for example, of exposure, uh, what we do is we take a normalized or some sort of uh, probability distribution, for instance, of body weights. Uh, we don't assume just one body weight. Uh, we'll take a range. And uh, there are some calculation tools in terms of using all of these distributions, distribution of dose, distribution of sensitivity, distribution of body weight uh, in our, our uh, exposure and risk assessment calculations. So instead of getting a number, what we get is a range of numbers uh, in terms of probabilistic risk assessment. Uh, and the idea is it's a result that gives us a range of certainty and uncertainty in terms of our result. Now, in terms of uh, the approach of this, what we uh, try to do with the risk assessment of uh, uh, carcinogenic con constituents in this probabilistic risk assessment, we try to get as an end result an upper bound lifetime risk uh, of cancer in humans uh, that is less than one in a million above background. Okay, that's the end product. And if you recall, when we did the Food Quality Protection Act, uh, we also found that the new standard in terms of risk assessment for cancer 
is one in a million. In terms of how this is approached, risk assessment typically involves many safety factors along the way. We'll take, for instance, a knoll. We'll apply a safety factor of 10 or 100, depending upon its particular type of toxicity. And all the way down the line, we'll take safety factors associated with how comfortable we're with that particular uh, bit of information that's used in the calculation. Well, these are multiplicative. In other words, uh, a safety factor of 10 associated with one variable in the calculation multiplied by a safety factor of 10 in the next variable, that gives us an overall uh, uh, safety factor just in that of a hundredfold. And as you add terms up in your safety calculation, uh, your hazard calculation for risk assessment, you can see that you can get in the very high ranges in terms of uh, 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 these safety factors, and in some cases, uh, a thousand, hundred thousand, or even a million fold uh, safety factors might be invoked depending upon how conservative we are in our risk assessment. Typically, what's going to happen is we will use the most conservative model that we can uh, in terms of our estimates. If we find out that uh, using those extremely conservative levels uh, presents a hazard uh, quotient or a hazard uh, that is an unacceptable risk, typically there will be motivation to develop real numbers uh, in terms of sensitivity, real numbers or more refined numbers, so that the variability, the, uh, the concreteness, if you will, um, the known ranges, uh, the distribution uh, is more refined in terms of the inputs of the calculation to try and decrease those safety factors. Typically when uh, you go away from assumptions and into raw data, there's an expense factor associated with that. And so um, if the market dynamic for a particular uh, food additive is sufficient, uh, there may be an investment of those sorts of materials, time and money uh, to do those kind of uh, risk assessments. Now in FDA's regulation of uh, food additives and specifically uh, carcinogenic constituents of uh, food additives, and again these are perhaps manufacturing byproducts, uh, materials that are in there, um, there is the potential to invoke the legal concept of de minimis. Uh, the de minimis concept essentially uh, translates from the Latin, the law does not concern itself with trifles. Uh, it first involved insect and worm fragments in food. Uh, there are insect and worm fragments, as you may know, in food. It's unavoidable. Uh, it is allowable uh, because of the fact that food is a natural product and there is going to be a minimal level of infestation or perhaps uh, uh, um, uh, contamination at a very small trace level that does not impact the overall quality of the food. Uh, we later applied de minimis uh, to uh, potential carcinogens or carcinogenic contaminants in food additives. If you recall in our discussions about Delaney and about the Food Quality Protection Act, um, I quoted that in the early 90s there were two federal district, uh, uh, Washington DC district court cases where the uh, litigants actually argued for the enforcement of Delaney relative to uh, carcinogenic pesticides in processed food products. The court decision, the district court decision at that time, when there were two in a row in the early 90s, essentially said you cannot, FDA, uh, referring to FDA, you cannot 
uh, invoke de minimis uh, with regarding uh, Delaney. It is very specific in terms of its ban of carcinogenic uh, uh, materials in processed food products. And so that actually, those court decisions were the legal force that changed uh, a lot of people's attitudes and actually gave us uh, a new version of pesticides uh, management uh, in the human food chain in the United States through the Food Quality and Protection Act of 1996. Uh, some of the other uh, cases uh, included FDNC Orange uh, 17. Now these carcinogenic constituents that might be uh, uh, trace levels in bulk food additives, uh, there is something referred to as the DES or the diethylstilbestrol proviso. And this does allow under uh, policy uh, of FDA the addition of carcinogenic substances or potentially carcinogenic substances to animal feeds if no residue, residues actually are determined to end up in the edible tissues. And so this particular animal drug um, has uh, been surveyed in terms of its potential use in animal, uh, uh, food animal uh, um, and livestock production. Now in terms of the interpretation of Delaney uh, and FDA's actions regarding uh, food additives, a risk assessment cannot be used if the food additive is carcinogenic. Uh, so carcinogens are banned under Delaney. There's a zero tolerance policy. This is a very strict uh, regulation. Uh, because it is so strict, uh, FDA requires clear and unequivocal uh, evidence for cancer in terms of the quality of the scientific studies. Uh, there are, have been a few substances banned. Um, how FDA has interpreted Delaney in terms of uh, regulatory science, the uh, food additive or the constituent must be a primary carcinogen, not a secondary carcinogen in terms of uh, example of a promoter. It's not considered uh, sufficient evidence of carcinogenicity. In terms of its, uh, this secondary carcinogenesis, what we have discussed in our uh, lecture previously about carcinogenesis and promoters. Uh, these are chemicals that cause some sort of physiological change uh, on a cellular basis often. Uh, these might be due to nutritional, hormonal, or physiological imbalances. Uh, there might be uh, some chemical that actually just promotes uh, the effect uh, after the action of a primary uh, uh, carcinogen. What we do want to see in a, um, for a designation of secondary carcinogenesis is no direct evidence of uh, genotoxicity. Some secondary carcinogens uh, that are actually uh, allowed in the U.S. food chain uh, then are, for example, BHA. BHA um, does uh, have the potential for chronic irritation in some individuals leading to tissue damage, uh, some hyperplasia, cell proliferation, and a potential increased chance of mutation in cancer. Uh, for the chemical compounds xylitol and sorbitol, uh, they can create a calcium imbalance in the gut that might be exacerbated by some fermentation uh, or uh, of uh, sugar alcohols. Now the substances banned by the lady um, associated with uh, uh, unacceptable uh, carcinogenesis risk 
uh, packaging materials, Flectol H, uh, mercaptimidiazole, uh, food additives including saffron, cinnamol, anthanolate, excuse me, um, thiourea, diethyl uh, pyrocarbonate, uh, which forms uh, urethane, a known carcinogen. Uh, these are all uh, regarded as primary carcinogens. Some carcinogenic food additives, uh, again, these are secondary carcinogens. Uh, the list includes, and these are allowed uh, in the human food chain in the United States, BHA, xylitol, sorbitol, uh, methylene chloride used in extractions, uh, tetrachloroethylene, um, uh, melanine, formaldehyde, nitrilotriacetic acid, or NTA, diethyl phthalates, uh, plasticizer in terms of plastics, uh, bentonite, and all of these chemicals are listed uh, by the NTP, the National Toxicology Program, and the International Agency for the Regulations of Car Regulation of Carcinogens. They all um, have uh, secondary carcinogenesis. They're all FDA approved as uh, food additives. Now the upshot of the impact of uh, the Delaney Clause on food additives is a good place to kind of sum up the, the whole risk assessment or safety assessment of food additives. Um, FDA does recognize that there is a very strict uh, uh, regulatory language in the Delaney Clause and it's because it is so strict and because it can have a dramatic impact in terms of production of food uh, and uh, the processing of food uh, FDA does require very unequivocal uh, and clear proof that the uh, particular additive is a carcinogen. Well, what this does for us, it gives us a, a, a somewhat brief introduction to the full range uh, of uh, food additives. Uh, the scope of this course isn't to, to talk about food additives and their use in food and food processing in terms of uh, a desirable end effect in the food product. Um, what we've tried to do is give you a range of uh, these particular chemicals, how they're classified, how they're tested, and uh, how they're interpreted in terms of uh, pieces of regulatory uh, science such as uh, the FFDCA and the Delaney Clause of the 1958 Amendments. Next time what we're going to do is review a series of about a half dozen food additives that are uh, perhaps the most well-known food additives in terms of uh, risk or some particular toxicosis. Until that time, we'll see you again. Thanks.